those mornings where I need to keep my coffee close. Forgive me for my weakness. Um, before we get started in our study, I just wanted to um, mention something about our study tonight in Leviticus. I think many of us who have attempted to read the Bible are uh, very good at beginnings and not so good at middles and endings. I think one of the places that we tend to bottom out, lose focus, get discouraged is Leviticus. Ironically, you make it through Leviticus and then you have a huge genealogy that kicks off numbers. Uh, and so uh, I, I just wanted to point out to you something that you've probably experienced before, which is just because something is difficult or distant doesn't mean it's not worthwhile. And a lot of times what makes all the difference is a tour guide. So for example, I love Plato's Republic. And I love the works of Shakespeare. Neither of those were I capable of loving on my own, but I had these teachers who opened up both my understanding and the value of those books. Um, and so if, if you hear, oh, Leviticus, why would I want to study that? I would say you are the prime candidate to join us tonight. Um, because, because this book is so central to the rest of, uh, to the rest of scripture and to what Jesus has done for us. Um, it's something that, uh, that is possible, and I honestly believe this, and I've experienced myself, possible to read with delight and edification. And so I'd encourage you, it's a great time to jump on if you'd like to join us for our study tonight. Um, now we're going to go ahead and get into our, um, our study this morning. We've been working through the book of 2 Corinthians. And we are still in chapter one, and we've been focusing in on a mini-series that we've called um, Finding Meaning in the Midst of Suffering, or just in the midst for short. Um, and as we take a look at our verses this morning, we're going to continue to process this reality of the fact that for many of us, and I'm not talking about hypothetically, I'm not talking about theoretically, I'm not talking about when you sit on your couch and ponder pain. I'm talking about when you're experiencing pain. For many of us, that robs life of meaning. That fills us with questions and not with answers. And so this passage in particular, as Paul shares from his own experience, is helpful in learning how to navigate that uh, and not just survive it, but find a sense of significance despite your suffering. And so if you have a Bible this morning, please open it up to 2 Corinthians. If you didn't bring one this morning in the back of a pew nearby, um, you'll find one. It's the black one. There's an index right up front. 2 Corinthians is a book in the New Testament. I think it's important that we understand that pain and suffering is something scalable. What I mean is when we talk about suffering, there is extreme, painful, deep suffering, and then there's also ongoing, minor, consistent suffering. In fact, I'd like to broaden out the category specifically this morning by using the word weakness. Weakness is the front door to what we're talking about. 
It might not be the deepest cavern of suffering, but it's, it's where this begins. And for me, I don't really feel that well acquainted with suffering, personally. I would say that it ranks very highly on one of the challenges of being a pastor because you're basically given a front row seat consistently into other people's pain. Um, and so, so the two things that I've had to remind myself is first, that I serve and proclaim a God who knows a little bit about suffering. And so that means that I can point to the one who knows suffering, who's sovereign in suffering, who loves in suffering. Um, and then second, I am tremendously well acquainted with weakness. Um, as some of you may know, I am very greatly introverted, like embarrassingly so, to the degree that after mismanaging my time on Friday and Saturday yesterday, I effectively laid in bed for four hours yesterday just trying to make sure that I could stand before you this morning. Now, there's all sorts of books and positive articles about there about the power of introverts, and I believe that. <laughs> but I have a hard time believing that extroverts ever are so lonely they need to lay in bed. Or so lonely that they, you know, it just, I feel the weakness of introversion very personally um, and very strongly. Um, and... That's really what our passage is about this morning. Before we read the verses, I just want to remind you where we've been, the, the things that we've learned. Paul opens his letter like he always does, just with a normal introduction and greeting. Here's who I am, here's who you are, here's a greeting. It's, it's very simple, it's tremendously simple, but it's also, as we saw, a standard line for Paul's belief as an apostle and the basics of Christianity. And so it allowed us, even in its simplicity, to ask the question, is suffering a rip in the fabric of life or is it a square in the quilt of God's plan? And we saw with every line, both in Paul's life in the God that he preaches in Jesus Christ, even in his greeting of grace and peace. Not only does suffering make sense in that context, but there's resources for our suffering in the basic tenets of Christianity. Um, the second thing that he lays out in verses 3 through 7 is the fact that one of the things that God does in our suffering is make us better comforters. He uses our suffering to teach us about his goodness, not just to make us comfortable, not even just to make us comforted, but so that we may comfort others. But there's one other aspect, uh, and that's what we'll cover this morning. Read with me, please, verses 8 through 11. Paul says to the church in Corinth, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf, for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Let's pray. 
God, I have a personal prayer this morning. I ask that you would help me to recognize that there are people in this audience who are intimately and presently acquainted with pain. And so I pray, Lord, that I wouldn't be merely preaching as a bystander, uh, but would uh, be able to uh, convey, as Paul does here, as your word does, as the God who took on flesh and endured poverty and suffering and pain, uh, I pray, Lord, that, um, that it would be from a place of understanding and from sympathy. Uh, I ask for all of us this morning that you would send your spirit to teach us your word, and I do this in confidence because that's what you promised. We thank you, Lord, that you're a God who can be known, even in the darkness of our difficulties, that we can know you. I pray that that would be the case this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Notice that Paul opens up here, and what has just been potentially theoretical is actually experiential. He's been sharing very broadly in generic terms about our suffering, when we are suffering, if we suffer. And now he says, but I want you to understand, I'm talking about actual bleeding here. I want you to, talk, uh, want you to understand that there is experiential data behind this, and it's personal. Listen to what he says again in verse 8. We do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Now, this Asia is not the Asia of today, but what we call Asia Minor. And so in, in biblical books and cities terms, you should be thinking of, uh, of Ephesus. You should be thinking of Colossae. Okay? That's this part of the world. And he says here, I want you to understand the affliction we experienced in Asia. Now, one of the best things you can do when you're reading and seeking to understand a portion of Scripture is read other portions of Scripture to help you understand it. The epistles that we have, the letters like 2 Corinthians, most of them fit into the timeline of the book of Acts. In fact, we know of Ephesus and Paul's missionary journey there. We know of the Corinthian church and its beginnings there in the book of Acts. There is difficulties in Asia, in Acts, but probably not this one. You see, if you go back and you read, I want to say, Acts chapter 19 you will see that Ephesus was miraculous, miraculously exploding with the gospel. Paul's impact in the city of Ephesus is so great that it has economic consequences. And the silversmith union gathers a secret meaning just to go, Christianity is killing the industry because nobody will buy our idols anymore. It's an extreme change. And so they decide, okay, we've got to deal with this now. We've got to nip it in the bud. And they instigate a riot to draw Christianity out into the public sphere and put it to death. And so what happens is as they, on the streets, totally grassroots, start this riot, it flows into the big amphitheater of Ephesus and becomes just a great rally for the goddess Diana. It's complete mob mentality. It's complete chaos to the degree that Paul's like, I got to go talk to them. And all of his friends restrain him from doing so. And it's actually the civil authority of the city, the equivalent of the mayor who comes out and goes, listen, 
this is crazy. These men haven't blasphemed our goddess, which is a striking statement in itself. We'll deal with another time. And he says, anyways, we've got courts if you want to do something legally, but rioting is the great sin of the Roman Empire, and we're at risk of losing our colony status because of your behavior. And then it disbands, and Paul moves on from the city. He's going to say later in the book that he fought with the beasts in Ephesus. And maybe that's somehow an insight into what this is talking about. That would imply some sort of opposition to the degree that he takes what would happen in the Colosseum when prisoners would battle with wild animals as an illustration of what he was going through. As we'll see later this morning in chapter 12 of this book, he says that he has some thorn in the flesh that he calls a buffeting of the devil as if he's in the ring with the devil himself and just taking blow after blow. Uh, So maybe this is some sort of physical ailment. We don't know. But I want you to listen psychologically to the way that Paul describes this thing for himself. Look at what he says. He doesn't just refer to it as our affliction in Asia. Um, Like we might say, uh, you know, our affliction uh, in the form of a two-year-old or our affliction at the business place. Listen to how he describes this. He says in uh, verse 8, continuing here, the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. He's grasping for words, and uh, the word hyperbole in the English, the Greek word, its full version, hyperbole, is right here. He's, he's pushing the limits of communication to stress this. And I want you to remember that this is the Apostle Paul. This is not his first round in the ring of difficulty and suffering. Okay? Later on in the book, he's going to lay out his entire history of pain, and it's extensive. So this is, not like, um, this is not like the first time you get punched in the face, right? When, when that's just merely theoretical, fighting seems like something you can do, but it's a different thing when you've taken a blow and you decide, or uh, here's one that I can actually relate to because I've never been punched in the face. Paintballing, theoretically, sounds fun. The first time you get hit, you go, holy cow, that hurts, and you run. That's the first thing you do, and you may be able to overcome that. There may be a worth on the other side. I never found it. But this is not that kind of pain. It's like, oh, broken limbs hurt. Oh, loneliness is difficult. Oh, it's harder to be. That's none of this stuff. He is well acquainted with suffering. In fact, remember, this is the Paul who earlier in Philippians says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And what does he say here? He says, uh, that we were burdened beyond our strength. In the ring of suffering here, Paul is trying to tap out. He's crying uncle, right? What does he say next? He says, we were beyond our strength. He says, so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Now, this is something that I can honestly say I've never had but I know that some of you this morning have where you would rather die than continue. That's where Paul is at. He despaired of life. In fact, notice the way he describes it. He says, to the degree, he says, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Not only was he longing for death, he was pretty sure this was it. 
that the end was coming, that there was a countdown clock on his life and the numbers were running down to zero. It's intense suffering that he's talking about here. Now, it's worth recognizing that as much as he wants the church in Corinth's support and sympathy in this, he doesn't get explicit. Even when he talks about the thorn in the flesh later or the beasts of Ephesus, it's relatively clear here that Paul isn't seeking pity. He's not um, using his pain as a means of comfort. Instead, he's doing something crazy. He's using it as a teaching tool. But I think it's worth pointing that out because, and, and this is understandable, but a lot of times when we're experiencing pain, it almost becomes a competition. You know, like those, you know how when you gather with people you went to high school with but didn't know in college, and so you're a different person, and so you really don't have anything in common, and you're trying to catch up, and there's this, this one-upmanship to storytelling that's just natural, where they tell a story and, and we just need to tell a similar one. Paul avoids that entirely. He doesn't paint the picture black. He just says, this is what the experience was like for me. But I don't want our habits or, um, or our, our storytelling or even our Northwest sensibilities of authenticity and putting our angst on paper, these types of things, to blind how serious this was for the Apostle Paul. For those of you who have read the other words of Paul, who know his story, who have studied his life, I want you to put it in that context. If there is a low point in the life of the Apostle Paul as a missionary of Jesus Christ, it's here. Of all the difficulties that he goes through, imprisonments and shipwrecks, being stoned almost to death and dragged out of a city, this is the one that was too much for Paul. One of the things that I think pain and suffering, especially when it's ongoing, does is it makes us feel alone and isolated. We have a tendency, not if we were reasonable and ever thought it through, I don't think any of us ever believed that nobody suffered like this. But the truth is we don't think about that at all. We only think about our suffering. And so I'm not saying that to... Um, to condemn that or to rebuke those who are in that place, just to break through and open the crowds and remind you that the words that I'm sharing this morning are not merely the words of someone from the outside who doesn't know what they're talking about. Whatever this was, it was extreme, it was severe, and it was purposeful. Listen to how Paul says this. I want to read the whole thing through. I want you to get the full weight of this. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He looks all of this pain in the the eye, and he says it serves a purpose. It has a meaning. There's a reason behind it. In fact, he roots it in the plan of God and he says, this happened for a reason and the reason was so that we wouldn't be so self-reliant. The reason is so we wouldn't be so independent. Now, 
I think that is a surprising message for a modern world. Because generally, what we assume is that independence is the goal. It's the way that we describe the best version of life. It's, uh, it's something even in our weakness that we think is where we need to get to. When we say, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger, that's an expression of self-reliance. And so you find yourself in two camps. Either I've got what it takes, or I have to get what it takes, or that's the end. Right? That is the general approach we take to life. Now, Paul has talked in this passage extensively about God as father, and so I think it's appropriate to use parenting as a window, but we need to recognize that this is a difference between our relationship with our children or our relationship with our parents and our relationship with God. The goal of parenting is that your children would become independent. Now, that's easy to forget. For many of us, raising children becomes an identity issue. We want somebody to care for us or to, to be cared for by us, to lean on us, to rely on us. But the goal is independence, and we can measure maturity in human life in that one realm by independence, right? But that's not what God is doing in our lives. When it says that God is our Father, his goal isn't to raise us up and send us out so that we no longer need him. Paul says this was good because it broke my self-reliance because it pushed against my sense of independence. Now, here's what I'm saying. I'm saying that if Paul is pointing to the heartbeat of what God is doing in his life, then he's also pointing to the purpose of what God does in all of our lives. And Therefore, I'm saying that what maturity looks like in the Christian life is more dependence, not less. And like I said, I think this is a reality check for us. This goes deep into the way that we think about life and identity and the good life and success and all of these things. And so I want to just poke some holes in that concept this morning. I want to begin where the Bible begins with the creation of Adam and Eve and I want to remind you that Adam and the Eve need God. Before there's sin, before there's fallen nature, before there's evil in the world, before Satan steps onto the pages of scripture, it is God who tells them right for wrong. Could he have made them so that they are innately for right and not for wrong? Could he have designed them so that they were independently aware? Do you not recognize when it talks about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's essentially an expression of independence that Adam and Eve make of eating of that tree? We will determine what is good and what is wrong. We will determine what's in our best interest. Even if you weren't struggling against your own sin nature, even if the world hadn't been corrupted with thorns and pain and suffering by the fall, you were designed for dependence. God didn't just create a people to be, but a people to be in him. 
That was the plan. That was the purpose according to the Bible. Now look at your own life. Independence is such a farce in your own life. Begin at the beginning as a baby and how needy you were, right? You don't owe, you're not self-existent. You didn't even make a choice, right? I know there's that great Dr. Seuss story where you're sitting in heaven, you get to make the choice. You don't get to make the choice, right? Someone else made the choice. And here you are. And from day one, you were completely reliant upon others. What would have happened if you were left on your own? That's the end. That's all there is to it. The problem is, because maturity is bound up in independence, and rightly so, that's the goal. We tend to overplay that hand, and we think that that's where I was and no longer where I am. I saw a headline this week that Hawaii is preparing their emergency reaction just in case North Korea decides to attack. How independently powerful do you feel about the nuclear arsenal of the world we live in? How much can you do? All of the plans that you make, all of the problem solving that you're doing and your issues, how would that be changed if the bombs dropped? Even still, independence for us, just on the human level, is a total myth. We rely on other people so much. That's why we get uncomfortable with this self-made man mentality that looks at all who struggle and just go, if they had just tried harder. We know what privilege is. Privilege is the recognition that we are dependent upon others, and when they let us down, that has direct consequences on our lives. But at a greater and deeper level, you are so dependent upon the reality of God. Think about involuntary movements. Think about the fact that the Bible says that every beat of your heart is accounted for and planned, that your breath is in his hand. It says of Jesus in the book of Colossians that through him all things consist. And the Greek word is sunisteo. All things are sustained. Do you know what causes an atomic explosion? It's when we break down the proton of an atom. Do you know what a proton is made up of? Remember your science books? Right? It's got a positive charge. The center of an atom is a collection of positively charged things, right? What do positives plus positives do? Remember your magnet set at home. They push away from each other. Somehow, at the center of every atom, there is a force we don't understand that keeps those things together. And when we interfere with that, we get tremendous power, okay? The philosophers of the 19th century called that the substratum, the metaphysical glue that holds the whole world together. The Bible says that's God. At 
The reason why I'm laying this on so thick is because even as we read these words, this is the way I think we think about it as modern Americans. We say this. We say, there are things in my life I can handle, and there's other things that I can't. And God wants to make me aware of the ones that I can't. Right? So there's things, there's hurdles I can clear, and then there's other things, maybe greater things, maybe better things God wants to do that require his help, and so he's trying to train me to lean on him. No. There is dependence and there is ignorance of your dependence. That's the paradigm. When we talk about self-reliance here so that we not rely on ourselves, I think the word sufficiency is appropriate. And it's one that Paul uses multiple times throughout this book. Listen to what he says later in chapter 2. Here's what I want. Actually, it might be... There we go. I'm looking at chapter 3. Chapter 2. Look at what he says in verse 15. He says, We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, the fragrance of death to death. To the other, a fragrance of life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Now, if you read the context there, He's talking about the suffering. He's talking about the difficulty. Why does his life look like death to some? Because it looks like death. Why does it look like life to others? Because we as Christians organize our life into the reality of the crucifixion. And we know that through death comes life. That's what he's talking about here. And he says that's our calling as Christians. And he says who is sufficient for these things? When I look at the, the cost of ministry, and once again, personally, I'm speaking from a place not of suffering or persecution or even affliction, but from weakness. This is my anthem. This is something that I have to say all the time, and I'm so relieved to find that this great hero of mine, the Apostle Paul, asks the same question. Who's good enough for this? Who's capable enough for this? Who can even handle? Who's sufficient for these things? But notice as he continues on in chapter 3, he says this. He says in verse 4, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is through God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. So when he asks the question, who's sufficient for these things? He's not putting out a job opening and asking for a resume. He's recognizing the fact the answer is clearly and fully and completely no one. You cannot live the Christian life in your own strength, in your own power. You weren't designed to do so. Listen as he continues on later in chapter 12. Like I said, this is where he talks about the thorn in the flesh. He says this in chapter 12, verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. 
Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Listen to the conclusion he draws. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weakness, insult, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So what does this self-reliance look like? It looks like a couple of things. Sometimes it just simply says, I can handle this. I'm enough. It's, it's a trust in your capabilities. But there's another version of self-reliance, and suffering does the same thing to that self-reliance, and that's a contentment with what you've made, a contentment with the life you've built. It's as if you, uh, you go, you know what? I'm going to build my own heaven. And we all do that all the time. We set out to aspire to and to create our own heaven. And so there's a contentment that comes with self-reliance that says, I can make myself happy. I can satisfy the wants and needs I find in my life, right? That's what self-reliance means. I don't need anyone to meet those needs. I can meet them on my own. I think that's a really good window into this paradigm because the ability one, honestly, I just think we can nod our heads, we can agree, sometimes we're fully acquainted with it, but we are so immersed in a culture of self-esteem that that we have a hard time keeping track of that. So let's take this other one of making what you need, of meeting your own needs, of this contentment that is false. Basically, what Paul is saying here is that we are capable of being content with too little, of settling and then labeling it a tremendous achievement of self-actualization. The danger here, as C.S. Lewis puts it, he says that on the road of life there are many inns, but God has designed each one so we wouldn't mistake any of them for home. Right? There's this Achilles heel in all of our happiness. It's temporary, it's unsatisfying, it's unlasting. And sometimes we forget that. There are people probably in this room who have set the standard of what will give me the good life is when I achieve this. And they've set the horizon. Now others of you have gotten to that horizon and found it's dissatisfying. But we're tremendously good at hope until we get there. Of thinking, in fact we're really good when we get there of just going, oh wait... The rainbow moves, so so did the pot of gold, right? And we keep going. And even when we get there, we go, this is dissatisfying, but I guess that's all there is. What C.S. Lewis says in The Problem of Pain is that that's one of the purposes of pain. That it rouses our sensibilities to recognize that this is it. It shows us the flaws and the things that make us happy. It pokes a hole in our contentment and makes us wonder if there's more. There's a passage I quote often in Jeremiah chapter 2 where God is describing where Israel's gone wrong. And it opens this way. It says, what other nation has ever exchanged its gods? 
But then he says this, he uses this imagery. He says, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have made for themselves cisterns, pots. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying that God is the source of all life and goodness, and instead we turn from him and we make pots. And we're not very good pot makers. They leak. So they can't even hold water. And the orientation there that he's calling us to is to walk away from our contentment with stuff that doesn't work and enjoy what we were made to enjoy. That's the danger of self-reliance. If you're a Christian, you have to be pro-weakness. It's built into the paradigm of what it looks like to convert, to become a Christian. The entrance to Christianity is despair. Now, some of us feel that a lot stronger than others. And I love in this same chapter in The Problem of Pain where C.S. Lewis is talking about pain frustrating our happiness, he points out the divine humility of God who's completely worth responding to when we're rich and wealthy because he's greater, but will take us even when we hit bottom. Some of us have that experience where we, we know that despair. Some of us have, have grown up around Christianity, received it so young, we never really got to taste the bottom of our broken barrel. And so we have to take it on faith, but it's just as true. Despair is the entrance. The definition of what it means to be a Christian is I'm not enough for life. I can't fix this. The problem is too hard for me. I am a slave to sin, and I need to be delivered. And the mistake we make is once we're set free, we dust ourselves off and we think, okay, now independently I can go and live the Christian life. Now I can do something. You know, he's set me back on the path and now I can walk it. That's not the goal, and it's also not how it works. Let's notice before we move on... um, he says here that it was to make us not rely on ourselves but the God who raises the dead the tense there is so important he doesn't say the God who raised the dead right although that's tremendously true and it would be an encouragement would it not he says in us we found the sentence of our death we were looking our tombstone right in the face that was our destiny and we're just walking you know we're teetering over the pit so remembering hey God's raised the dead. That's an encouragement. Hey, death doesn't have to be an end. That's an encouragement. That's not what he says. He said the God who raises, present tense, the dead. See, salvation as we understand it as Christians is not just a past tense thing. God saved me. It's a present tense thing. It's a constant deliverance. And so he knows personally the God who raises the dead because he's experienced that. Some people think that this imagery of sentence of death and raising the dead points directly to illness in Paul's life because this is how the Jews would talk about recovery from a horrible illness. They would speak of the God who raises the dead. But the point is here that for us, death is a tremendously perfect reminder of the weakness of humanity. Go ahead, escape it, resist it, run from it. 
the success rate of the human race is zero. But it's also a reminder for us as Christians of the incredible power of God because what God has done in Jesus Christ means that that great inevitable end for all of us is no longer an end at all. Think of it for a second just as a Christian. The finish line of your life is not you in front of the pack, you know, coming across the finish line full of power and vigor. It's much more like those people whose body just begins to break down and they're wobbling and crawling across. The last act of your Christian life will be death. And so self-reliance goes against the grain of what God is doing in our life. Notice how he puts it in verse 10. He says, he delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we've set our hope so that he will deliver us again. There's one early Greek manuscript that actually for the second one there says, and is delivering us, which would put it in all three tenths. He has delivered us, he is delivering us, he will deliver us. It's just one manuscript, so either somebody thought that it was as clever as I did and decided it was a better thing than what Paul said. Um, It's hard to tell. But the point is here that he sees deliverance as an ongoing need in the Christian life. Do you, do you live your life as if present tense, you need to be saved? You need to be delivered? Jesus taught us to pray one prayer, the Lord's Prayer. And in it, there is this super interesting line where he says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I think that's an incredibly hard statement to process. Lead us not into temptation? It's not merely when we're tempted, help us. It's keep us from being tempted. If that doesn't show the reliance we have on God, I don't know what does. When we pray that, it's an expression that we are not enough for the challenges of today and that we shouldn't be so swift to think that we can just brace up under them. I told you about that American modern idea of self-reliance and how it's expressed in the things we say. God will never give you more than you can handle is one of those statements. That goes directly in opposition of lead us not into temptation. It's a recognition that we need God's help not to face what we can't handle. I think not only is this tremendously good for us to understand, because like I said, this is the heart of the gospel. Not only is it tremendously hard for us to understand because of our culture, and I'll give you another example. Bad parenting, even in my mind, is defined by the words of Marlon in Finding Nemo when he says to his son, who has one weak flipper, you think you can do these things, but you can't. And we all feel that rush of injustice. We all feel that sense of guilt when we've said similar things. Marlon was a Christian. That's a truth that you're going to have to own up to. That that's the biblical view of life. That you are not enough. He says he's delivered us. He is delivering us. He will deliver us. And then notice he ties it to hope. On this we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Take your circumstances right now. 
Where is your hope that everything's going to be all right? Where is, you know, where are all the chips riding? As the ball is spinning, what is your red 16? Is it your genius? Is it some sort of platitude so you don't have to look your pain in the face that this just can't last forever? You know, the sun will come out tomorrow. For Paul, he says, our only hope of deliverance today and tomorrow in this and in that is Jesus, the deliverer. Let me define it in the biggest terms. Your role in the Christian life is to be saved. Do you know what that little word be means? It means passive. Whenever you add that to a verb, it changes the verb from an active verb, saving, to a passive one, being saved. The verb of existence just means you stand there. Think of all the times in the Old Testament where God effectively says, get this through your head. When he comes to Gideon and he narrows down his armies and says, no man, not by thousands, just a few hundred, lest you think that you won the battle. Think of Israel that he intentionally leads into the Red Sea with the Egyptian armies before it. And what does he say? Stand still and see the salvation of God. And effectively, what Paul says here this morning is that we should desire that in our lives. I've shared with many of you before um, the story of Jacob because I think it just pictures this so well. Here's Jacob, who is terribly good on the one hand of identifying in his relationship with God and on the other hand of being his own God, solving his own problems. And he gets to a place where there's no hope unless something goes right, where behind him is his uncle, who he has taken advantage of, and in front of him is his brother, who the last time he saw him said, I'm going to kill you. And that's why he left, right, was to avoid that. This is a definitive rock in a hard place scenario. He hears that his brother's coming, and not alone, but with 400 armed men. And he has a decision to make, and he prays one of the best prayers in the Bible. God, you promised to take care of me. God, when I left the land, I was nothing. Look, now you've made me two camps. All of these people are because of you. God, I need your help. And then he says amen, and he does what most of us do. He goes, okay, here's the plan. And he's like, I'm just going to bribe my brother out of this so he wouldn't kill me, so I'm going to send drove after drove of gifts. And what happens in the middle of the night? He crosses the river all by himself, and he gets in a wrestling match with the living God. Guys, don't read that story wrong. I know it preaches, but it preaches poorly when we talk about prayer being wrestling with God. That story is not Jacob wrestling with God. It's God wrestling with Jacob. If you want to understand that story, it's not Jacob going, please answer my prayers. It's God going, please let me answer your prayers. Right? And what happens? The battle's finally won because he touches Jacob's hip, and for the rest of his days, he walks with a limp. You want to know who Jacob is in personality? He's a runner. Not anymore. When he stands before Esau tomorrow, he is desperate. And for the rest of his life, he limps. That's when he gets the name change. No longer are you Jacob, the heel catcher, the conniver, the one who solves his problems, the good wrestler. But now I call you Israel, governed by God. My question to you is this. Do you see it as worth it? 
Are you willing to take the limp so that your dependence won't be so challenged by your independence? Can you, like Paul, say, oh, well, if this suffering means that your strength is perfected in my weakness and that your grace is sufficient, then I will boast in it and stop asking for you to deliver me from it. I don't like to preach on suffering for the reason I mentioned earlier, that I just don't feel like this is anywhere where I've experienced, let alone an expert. So I like to let those who suffer greatly speak instead. And there was a woman named Joni Erickson Tata. And as a teenager, she dove into a pool, uh, a, a lake specifically, misgaged the depth, and shattered a place on her spine and became a quadriplegic, lost full control of her body was relegated to a wheelchair in the care of others for the rest of her life. She was a Christian, and as a teenager, just remember what it was like to be a teen when everything in life laid out before you and all of that was just pulled out from under her. She struggled with depression, with resentment, with doubt, of course. She began to paint with a paintbrush in her mouth. And she began to experience healing, not physically, but in her soul, as she pondered who God was, as she learned about God. And with that same mouth, she went on to write 40 books, many of them about suffering. I want you to listen to her words instead of mine. This is what she says. She says, my weakness, that is my quadriplegia, is my greatest asset because it forces me into the arms of Christ every single morning when I go up, get up. My weakness is that my, that is my quadriplegia is my greatest asset because it forces me into the arms of Christ every single morning when I get up. She goes on and she says, maybe it's the able-bodied who are handicapped. Now in my mouth that sounds trite, not in hers. Read her books. She knows Jesus. She experiences the depth and the comfort and the love of Jesus. She knows something about the every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. She longs for heaven in a way that we often don't. Self-reliance isn't just a myth. It's a threat. It's, our th it's a threat to the depth of our relationship with God. Let me put it one last way, in this way I found personally. Anything that hurts your pride is positive in the Christian life. Undeserved, doesn't matter. Unjust, irrelevant. Your pride is what the Bible calls in some places empty vanity, right? Uh, 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 what is the word it uses? Vain conceit, that's the one I want. It's empty, it's unreal. So Paul's able to look at this and he says he delivers us from such a deadly peril and that's good. He empties us of self-reliance, not just so that we would be weak and left. The, this is not just a shaming act where he just wants to get us to say uncle and walk away the victor. That's not what this is, is it? It's so that we may trust in the God who raises the dead so that we may tap into the actual source of power, so that we may deeper experience God's grace and his enablement. 
Now, dependence is difficult. And it's intriguing to me that the first place he goes where he says, how do we go about dependence? Listen to what he says. He says, verse 11, you must also help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Now, prayer in and of itself is an expression of dependence. It is. It's us recognizing that we need and recognizing that the one who meets those needs is God. But I want you to notice that he doesn't just talk about his prayer life, although that is something. If that's where intimacy in a relationship with God is cultivated, nothing draws us into that intimacy more than need, more than difficulty, more than recognizing our need. In fact, twice in my life, things have gotten so bad momentarily that I've literally dropped to my knees and prayed. I'll tell you about one of them. When my first son was being born, everything was new in the birthing process. Now we're experts. It, wouldn't, it would be different today. But there I had nothing but ignorance and fear. And my wife is there. Our doctor isn't there yet. They're just getting her prepped. Uh, they give her... Um, uh, they rub lidocaine on, and then they put in her IV, and the heartbeat of the baby disappears. They roll her over. They look for it again. They can't find it. And so they decide, okay, the only option is a crash cesarean, which means no epidural. They just put you under and cut you open. But we're not in a surgery room. We're just in a normal room, and the surgery room that's on the birthing floor is currently in use, so they have to take her straight to the OR which means I can't come. And so over the course of two minutes, my wife is suddenly gone. The nurses are gone. She's hopping on an elevator. They put her under. She wakes up an hour and a half later in that emotional state, the same one she went under in with the added confusion. And I'm left in a room by myself, not knowing what this means for my wife or my son, and I just hit the floor. What else do you do? And this is true. It it, it might be still a little bit naive, but it's one of those occasions where God's care for me was so great. By the time the social worker came to make sure I was okay, I was okay. And I told her she could leave because strangers don't really help me. (laughs) And five minutes later, they brought me my son with a nick on his head because the doctor had been so quick, he actually cut her cutting my wife, or cut him cutting my wife. That's what great difficulty does. It drives us to prayer. But more than that, what does Paul say? He says, we need you to pray for us. One of the best ways in the Christian church to break your independence is to recognize your interdependence with the body of Christ. And Paul goes there. He doesn't just say we should pray in hard times. He says we should ask for prayer in hard times. In fact, how did he open it? Look again at verse 8. We do not want you to be ignorant. Why aren't you telling people what's going on in your life? A lot of times, a lot of times the reason is because you want to maintain the appearance of self-sufficiency, of self-reliance. You know that they won't understand because how does anyone understand what you're going through? And so you bite your tongue. Paul says, no, the first thing we do is we end ignorance. We step into the light. We share the difficulty we're going through. We ask for prayer. 
But even though he does that, I want you to notice that he maintains a distinction in our interdependence on one another and our dependence upon God. He feels the need to clarify that, so listen to how he finishes. He says, you must also help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. What does he say here? He says, the primary reason I need you to pray is not to twist God's arm. It's so that when God meets my need, you can be thankful as well. You can understand that God is a great provider. You can be acquainted with the grace that's available. See, when we pray for other people, we don't just seek to meet their needs. We enter into their need. We become needy. And the truth is, that's always how it works when you comfort the suffering. You enter into that pain. You join in what Paul calls the fellowship of suffering. And although you can't enter in fully, and it's never going to be as high stakes as it is for the person who's suffering, there is a tangible reality to that. It makes us needy. It wakes up in the middle, us up in the middle of the night and draws us into prayer again. It makes us desperate, and it reminds us that we can't fix this either. And so he says we should pray for one another, not just because we need prayer, but because we need to be reacquainted with the God who answers prayer. And so he says, so that many will give thanks on behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Why does he want many praying? So that many would be blessed because of who we pray to. Because he is the one who delivers us and has delivered us and will deliver us. Because he is the one who raised the dead and is raising the dead and will raise the dead. He is the one who is our full and complete and utter sufficiency, our all in all, our alpha and omega the author and finisher of our story. My encouragement, even this week to you, would be to actively press against your independence. If you're in a good season where you don't feel like you have have much need, press into the needs of others. Reacquaint yourself with this. Moses and Psalm 90 contemplates death and he says that's a good practice for Christians to remember that you are finite and that the end, the finish line is rotting. But the reason why this is good news is because frankly weakness is not good news. But weakness that draws us into strength, surrender that leads to victory, limping that creates a dependence on the living God who is our protector that is tremendously good. That's what discipleship looks like. It looks like growing in our reliance, our trust, our faith, and our awareness of need, correspondingly, of the God who saves us. Let's pray. Even now, Father, I can hear this voice in my head going, easy to say, easy to even agree with. But I pray, Lord, at any cost that you would draw us closer to yourself. I pray that you wouldn't just demonstrate our inability to solve our problems, to set things right, to face our lives but also our self-sufficiency 
these little kingdoms we build for ourselves. I pray, Lord, that you would be the wave that topples our sandcastle so that we would look away from what we've built into the kingdom you're offering us. I pray that you'd give us the attitude of Paul and even the experience of Jacob, that you would give us the heart of Joni Erickson Tata that says, you know what? I will boast in the things that make me weak because your strength is perfected in weakness. It's made manifest, it's shown. I pray, Lord, if there's any of us who have been holding back the struggle, hiding our depression, withholding information about how, how things are really difficult or the things that we faced in our life, I pray that we would find people who we love and who love us and we'd be able to share those burdens. Not because they can always help or fix us, but because in that prayer, we're all pressing into our need for you. Thank you for your word. And the fact, as mystifying as it is, that even Jesus, God became man, learned obedience by the things he suffered. I pray, Lord, that you would equip us to navigate suffering, not with some sort of ignorance or insensitivity, but with hope. I ask this in your name. Amen. As we respond this morning, there will be people available up here for prayer. I just want you to recognize that that's where repentance sometimes begins, and especially this morning. That that's what a response looks like sometimes, and especially this morning, is to ask for prayer. Also, please, if you're a Christian this morning, come forward on your own time, partake of communion in obedience to Jesus. Remember his body broken for you, his blood that was shed, and the new covenant that he offers you. But let's take some time and worship this God, the God who is strong when we are weak. And it's something greater than that, the God who is willing to make us weak so that we can enjoy his strength.